out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the band Thatcher on Acid because I spoke to the drummer Andy Tuck very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview. Um, Thatcher on Acid, you can find out a little bit more about them if you want to, I don't know, Google them. But anyway, look, you're going to find out everything and more about the band. And what happens next? Or oh, actually, what happens before? So after a short conversation with Andy, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. I know, classic. Anyway, Andy, it's over to you. Well, the f- funny enough, T-Rex was the first album I bought, which I still got, Rider White Swan. Right, classic. And I was, yeah, and I bought it, in, remember buying it in Boots, when Boots used to sell records, do you remember? Boots yeah. the Chemist. <laughs> and I, I remember paying 89 pence for it and I've still got it and I, I yeah then I got into yeah Gary Glitter and then and then kind of when the punk thing came out kind of got into the clash and then later on sort of crass and all the anarcho punk stuff and my music was kind of quite reductive it was very quite narrow right only as, only as I've got older I've kind of I've diversed a lot more it's um discovering loads of other recently got into jazz and um which I, I had a real block about but i've kind of got over it which is and i've kind of embraced it quite quite a lot so. <laughs> yes i know you know it's a, bit, it's a bit of a self-conscious thing when you get into jazz when you're younger and you don't really know but you yeah you it's cool and hip and also i a bit later i suppose in the 80s started reading some of that you know jack Kerouac's on the road and there was this mention of jazz so i thought i should you know definitely listen to some miles davis and cab yeah, yeah. Um, but you know kind of blue is quite accessible so what was your kind of house like what were your parents like did they were they musical at all or had music yeah i remember we had this big amazing gramophone like you know, it was always polished bright walnut gramophone that had us had a real certain smell to it. He lifted up and had this, this all sort of real sort of antique sort of smell of polish. And I remember their collection of 78s used to like play Bill Haley and the Comets and Elvis Presley and Nat King Cole and right. stuff like that. <laughs> but not, not, on a, not, not on a sort of like a big, not on a sort of mad scale. Usually it was usually, usually tend to be a Sunday. Blimey, that's kind of very, travel. very because my parents I think when they got married in the 50s they kind of sold I think the working class just sold sold everything and just um you know saved up to buy this and buy that and then you know my parents never sort of had debt you know they would have to work for anything they wanted so we didn't get a record player in the house until the early 70s when you know that it appeared but my dad had had I think Elvis Presley stuff and and I think then just kind of worked seven days a week to sort of keep you know to buy you know whatever we needed so but it was my I had an older brother who was seven years older in the sort of that 70s period and he introduced us to bit you know like the Beatles the Sgt Pepper album and uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road but he was really into prog rock he was perfect for yeah. prog so he hated punk so that never appeared and I was you know we I was brought up in the countryside in a village so punk didn't really happen at all yeah yeah. you know the closest no we didn't we, we weren't even remotely close to punk we got there was status quo that was one of the main bands you know because it was one of those kind of the quo were the main band in the kind of you know in, in east Anglia. you know you would not mention or say anything unpleasant about quo without getting beaten up really so that was oh, kind okay. of the main band so when did when did drumming sort of appear when, in the musical instrument 
Um, I think when I was when I left school, I, I was set to go to art college and um, I had a place at art college. And then I decided I want to get a drum kit, and I couldn't get a drum. I couldn't. My parents couldn't afford to buy me a drum kit, so I, I had to go out and get a job to pay for a drum kit. And that's why. And I didn't go to art college. Right. So uh, I, but which was fine because I I ended up getting a job working. Remember the youth opportunities program? Yeah. Massive, like unemployed. I ended up working for the National Trust on that, restoring an old priory and saving up the money to buy a drum kit. And that's. I was in 1981, I think. 1981. Blimey, yeah. Well, I, 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 well, I suppose you know, like you know, Thatcher got in in um, 1979 after you know we had that decade where everything you know we were quite young at the time, and obviously you know like there was this kind of constant changing of who was the prime minister and all those strikes, and we, you know, I remember one winter we got that kind of. Um, I suppose it was a bit like being at school. You got a timetable when the electricity would get, you know, would just go off, and we used to have these tiddy cuts. Remember power cuts? Power cuts were quite the thing. And there was this real anxiety one Christmas of whether we were going to be able to have Christmas and have the cooker and television, because obviously in the 70s, television was so important then. And, um, yeah. you know, you'd get that, oh, you know, Tuesday afternoon, we won't have any electric. You know, it's like, okay. And I just remember these Tilly lamps my dad had, which were just like, you know, you'd pump them up and it would like blast you with light, but you'd just sit around the table sort of chatting away, really. It was so... Um, yeah. Yes, it was quite amusing. But then, yes, yeah, so then in the early 80s, we had the Falkland disaster war. And then, yeah. and then it was all the, you know, and, you know, being unemployed, if you're a left or centre, didn't seem a bad thing, really. Um, so there was all those kind of job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance scheme. But you were on the, was it a YOP course? Yeah, you remember the, it was called the Youth Opportunities Programme. Yes. They used to dangle a carrot. You, 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 you do this scheme for six months and they dangle a carrot. Or, you know, the end of the six months will give you a job, but it never happened. Really? It just cheap, yeah, it's just cheap labour. They get someone else in. It was just to massage the dole figures. So, you know, reduce the dole figures. Yeah. You know, just all superficial, just a band-aid, you know. And Well, and I know I, the, yeah. the Enterprise Alliance scheme was certainly a bit, a bit like that, wasn't it? Because it was, um, you know, trying to say, oh, dear, there's a bit too many unemployed. We'll put them on this. Yeah. We won't include that that number. So there was a lot of bands I've interviewed that you know it's a bit of a cliche, but they that was their kind of apprenticeship yeah. and an indirect indirect grant from dear old Thatcher. So um, yeah. yeah, so they had a year you know on the doll, getting drunk, smoking dope, and um, and then yeah. sort of making a little seven inch single to send to John Peel, and it was like you know the great cliche. That was I think that's why there's yeah, so yeah. many bands from the eighties because in that period you know we'd had the punk, which obviously you were probably about twelve when that happened. Yeah, I did it. Doing it, I did an interview with a guy from Eater who was all of sixteen, I think. You know, from you know from seventy six. So um, yeah. I was quite impressed actually, putting on punk gigs at school, and um, yeah. yeah, so they had to shop. They had to shoplift their equipment, which I thought was quite funny. Yeah. But um, yes, and then and then you you know we had post punk, which obviously seemed a bit difficult for the young ear. But then we had bands like you know I suppose Julian Cope came along and U two and Simple Minds and Big Country. And and then you know there had been orange juice. So so then you know eighty three. I must admit you know though it's a bit tricky now, isn't it? But the Smiths appeared. So there was this huge kind of rise and excitement with indie pop. So what was yeah. your kind of musical kind of trajectory through that period? Um, I think well in eighty three I left. I, I grew up in Somerset in a place called Yeovil. Blimey, small, small, a small town in Yeovil, which is um. When you musically you think of Pete, they always mention PJ Harvey. If you mention Yeovil, PJ Harvey 
Yes. And, well, she actually came from just down the road across the border in Dorset, officially. But she, she used to record in a studio in Yeovil, which we actually we used to we'd record in the same studio. Place was that with ice. John Parrish at all? Uh, no, it wasn't, wasn't with John Parrish. No, it was a guy called Head. who used to engineer all, all, Pete, all Polly Harvey's stuff. Right. Um, the same which she did all her early demos there. And we recorded a, an album, a split album and a couple of single there. Right. It's no longer there. It's, it's been demolished. It's now housing now or something. Yes. But, um, but then 83, I moved to London. And then, like you say, it was that whole thing. You could come to London back then and you could, we ended up squatting for years. And you could live in a, you could squat a house without any hassle for a number of years because there were so many empty houses around. And all the councils had no money to do them up. So basically we had a place to live for free. And like you said, it, 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 it was like a, like a hive of activity for people to get stuff together, like fanzines, bands, a lot, you know, with people involved in political movements, whole food co-ops. It was, it was, it was, it was quite amazing, really. Yeah, it was very, I know. Very, very productive. Well, I suppose Norwich had a sort of famous squat, didn't they, on Argyle Street? And I know friends who were squatting in Leeds and who sort of knew Chumbawamba because I think, yeah. you know, they were also sort of living in that kind of world. But then there's, there's a lot of bands I've interviewed from Australia. It was kind of interesting. They they did the big thing of coming from Australia and sort of coming to London and squatting in London, you know, from, you know, like yeah. bands like the Go-Betweens and the Chills and I think possibly the Triffids yeah. as well, and as well as New Zealand bands. So there was like this whole kind of community. And I think a few years later, there was something called the Ambulance Station where they started putting on, yeah. I think, the first ever Jesus and the Mary Chain gig and stuff like that. It was, it seemed quite, I mean, yeah. health and safety was completely out the window, but. <laughs> yeah. I remember, um, I remember, I, used to, I went to quite a few gigs there. I remember seeing um, Kirkle, which was Bjork's first band. Oh, yes, from, yes. From and they were playing with a band called Flux Pink Indians, who the bass player later went on to uh, set up One Little Indian Records, and right. um, just now Bjork's label. And I remember, yeah, seeing Kirkle play there, and it was just, it was, it was crazy. And when, there were so many people there, and when Flux Pink Indians came on to play, like to headline, the PA stack literally fell over, so they had to gig with the band. <laughs> there, was, <laughs> there were so many people there. But, um, yes. Yeah. That was that was the old Kent Road, just down from the Elephant and Castle. Yeah, well, I think in the last couple of years, there's been this little record label in Preston called Optic Nerve Records, and they've been, well, this one guy has been sort of putting out some quite amazing stuff, and he he did one called The Hangman's Beautiful Daughters, because um, it was vaguely connected to the the famous Dan Tracy, who was on, who started the Wham record label, and I think, I think he was probably. Eight and one, but they used to tour with him, and and I think they used to live at the old, at the old ambulance station. I know it's kind of yeah, all these amazing moments. The eighties did did pack it in, didn't it? Really, I mean, because during did, that period yeah. as well, I mean, it was kind of interesting musically because you had the mainstream charts that seemed so divorced from what I was listening to with you know I suppose Wham and um, Spandau Ballet and. Duran Duran and then you had that Trevor Horn production and then you had you know the other side which was John Peel and the NME and all these kind of indie yeah. gigs um, and, and it was kind of lining up to the famous Red Wedge tour which was kind of obviously yeah. you know had brought in that kind of element as well so it's, it was kind of a fascinating period so was with your drumming then and living in squats were you just kind of randomly going into different bands? Yeah I played I remember there was a band I I played with regularly in Hackney with some people around the corner. A band called Cluster Fucks. We did a few handful of gigs. We played at we played at the Blue House, which is a famous squat in Hackney, 
circa right. 1985. Um, it, was a, it was an old National Trust building that um, some people went went to live there, and they they used to put on gigs and benefit gigs. There was a cafe there, yeah. And um, then I moved to South London in 1987, I think. 87, I moved to, but in between then, I'd been. I, a drum brief. I did a gig with, with uh, Mark Astronaut and the Astronauts. Oh yes. And, um, we did a lot of gigs with Blythe Power, and, um, and then joined Thatcher and Acid in '87. Because Martin, the original drummer, left. I think he left in '87, and I I stepped in because we were all from Somerset. We were, there was this massive tribe of punks that moved from Somerset to London. Yes. And it ended up in South London. So it was going to be the place, wasn't it? Yeah. So. yeah. So yeah. the astronauts were quite something, and Joseph Porter is just his his output and the amount of material he's done has been phenomenal. I keep thinking he should yeah. definitely he should sort of publish a book of his lyrics actually and an explanation because they're so fantastic. Yeah. You know, I think he's just kind of a, 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 such yeah. a wordsmith. He's he's a kind of yeah. he's so ignored. And I guess Mark from the astronauts is a similar really. I mean, they just oh, kind Mark, of Mark, yeah, he he he's 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 a gem. He's just I, I, I think he's one of these people that when he when he you know, God forbid he's going to be around for a long time. But when he goes, people will suddenly discover this genius of a songwriter who's just there's no one like him. He's just unique. He's he's yeah. just his lyrics are just yeah, fantastic. He's 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 a real he's a real gem. Marker. Yeah, I know. Well, it's kind of interesting just how many different scenes there were, sort of with that punk and then anarcho punk and and sort of such like. So when so where had Thatcher on Acid been going for very long before you joined them? Um, I think they formed in eighty five, possibly. Right. Um, you probably have to verify that with Ben or Matt. But I think it was eighty five, and then Martin left in eighty seven. They did a they did a twelve inch single and a, an album, and then I think Martin left. Yeah, 87, I think he left. Well, I joined the band in 87. So that was when they'd, you'd re, well, they'd released Curdled. Yeah, the, the Moon Dance was the first single, the 12 inch. Yeah. On all the Madman records. And they did the album um, Curdle. Yeah, that was also on all the Madman. All the Madman. So 87, which is our. I've got it's the best year of music ever. I mean, to be honest, 86 was quite good as well. But um, it was a kind of a <laughs> glorious period. I mean, when you look at the releases at that period, it's just quite boggling, really. Um, I mean, we, we did moan a lot in the 80s and it was all very angsty, but Christ, the music was incredible. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so when you got, oh, how did you, obviously, well, you just said that, that the original drummer was leaving. So did you, did you just know the other two members of the band? Yeah, I'd known Matt. I'd actually played in a band briefly with Matt um, in Somerset, a band called Psycho Daisies. We did a handful of gigs. And um, so I knew Matt already. Um, ben, I knew to say hello to him. I knew Martin as well. We, I, I played in a band called Wreck of the Hesperus from the Oval with some friends. And we'd, we'd done a couple of gigs with Thatch on Acid right. in the Somerset scene. And um, so I knew, I, knew, I knew them all already anyway. Martin said, oh, you know, I'm sure Andy would be up for doing it. So. Yes, and, and it all fitted well. Because I suppose yeah. one of the first releases I'd sort of come across during that period, because I suddenly became aware of the famous poll tax, and uh, there was a compilation, wasn't there? Well, there was two. There was one in Leeds called Elvin Lives in Leeds, which, you know, was all those cover people doing covers of various kind of classics. And then there was the Apox Upon Your Poll Tax, which featured Thatcher on Acid doing yeah. Fly, wasn't it? Which was... Um, 
I think was it mostly okay. was that mostly funded by Chumbawamba that album? I, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I I, I didn't. Yeah, I, I'm, I didn't play on that track. That was that was a, a track from Curdled, I think. Right. So, um, I, yeah. I, I um. I think it probably was to do with Chumbawamba. Yes, we were getting very excited by then, weren't we, with Paul Tucks? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So what was it like sort of being, sort of coming into a band who would, I mean, because most bands I've interviewed, they have a five-year narrative. I mean, they get together, they have a honeymoon period, which is 12 months, and then the first album, doing the tours around the kind of countryside, all the, I mean, every town and, and city had a, you know, I mean, in those days, would have an indie night, wouldn't it? Or sort of alternative night, as we like to call yeah. it, because it made us feel much more, interesting and yeah. um yes and then you had the nme as well so did it feel yeah so with the with the band you know with most bands the, it was the sort of second album and about five years later that most people that just had sort of felt a bit sort of like they'd been in some sort of mild mild form of war i suppose so with yeah. with sort of coming into the band after the first album did that help the kind of the sort of dynamics of it um yeah it was pretty seamless i think i mean i kind of yeah we kind of we did, I, I kind of learned the songs on a practice kit in, when I was living in, in Hackney. And then um, we kind of started writing, writing our own songs. And then I can't remember when the, the, the next release. Oh, we did, we did a live album. Then uh, a friend of ours, Sean, who works for Rough Trade. I'm not sure if you've, you know, Sean, Sean Forbes works for Rough Trade. <clears throat> He's one of these ubiquitous characters who's been on the the alternative music scene for a long, long time. And he's, he's, he set up his own record label, Rugger Bugger Records. And the first release was a Thatcher and Acid live album. Okay. I know there was yeah. somebody from Ouija Records who seemed to sort of just put up a phenomenal amount of stuff on YouTube, you know, like very obscure albums and live albums and stuff. It was yeah. so, um, yeah, that was, I think that's Southern Studios, isn't it? Ouija, Ouija Records. Yeah. Yeah, something yeah. like that. So we we sort of so when you did Frank, which you know I've been playing quite a bit today. There's a lot. Your, your drumming's very to the fore, isn't it? You did sort of bring quite oh, a dynamicness to the to the band. This is on Agit Prop Records, which and this is Chumbawamba's label. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because we basically we we met Chumbawamba in oh god, what year was it? Possibly eighty seven. We did a gig. We did a couple of gigs with them in Swansea and Birmingham over a weekend and we that was the first time well that's the first time I I'd met them yeah I think that acid had played with them you remember the time box the venue in Kentish town yes yeah Factor and acid uh, before I when Martin was in the band they played with Chumbawamba at the time box and then we about a year or so 18 months later we played we did this weekend gig in Swansea and Birmingham with Chumbawamba and we sort of like hung out with them in fact on the way from Swansea to Birmingham, we actually stopped and played football. <laughs> Chumbawamba would be Thatcher and Acid. They beat, they beat us, actually. It was like well, they've, they got more, they've got more players. Yeah. <laughs> they beat us 9-8. It was, it, was, it was amazing. We were just driving along. We just, oh, you fancy a game of football. So we just stopped and had a game of football. Yes, well, and, so it's um, good. It, it stops the deep vein thrombosis, doesn't it, really? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Because at this stage, I mean, Chumbawamba was still a tiny band that hardly anybody had heard of, really. Yeah. Eight I mean, they, they, were, they had quite a big cult, kind of like sort of underground following. Yes. Um, sort of, um, I remember seeing them. I remember hitching up to Liverpool and Birmingham to see them. They did a benefit tour for the miners in 1984. With yeah. Fluxpink Flux Indians in Kirkall. Bjorks, you know, 
one of her first bands. I remember going up to see that and mine minors benefit tour they did and yeah because a lot of the gigs we did were mostly benefit gigs for various things. There was a lot of benefit gigs about wasn't there yeah. and had you played at things like the one in 12 club in Bradford? Yeah we did yeah I remember we played at the one in 12 club and yeah. Yes yeah. and what about Norwich did, did you ever come down to the or Ipswich? We, we played at the Arts Centre. Excellent. On a Tuesday night I remember it being a Tuesday night for some it's always, well, I think with a lot of alternative nights or indie nights or whatever they like to call them, yeah. they were often at the beginning of the week where I suppose the person who ran the venue went, well, you're not going to have Friday or Saturday because, but you know, no one's going to, you know, Tuesday, you can have Tuesday or Wednesday yeah. or Monday. Yeah. <laughs> and it was yeah, like, I, you know, I think, I think that's the way that CBGB started. I think the guy, you know, because he wanted it as a country and blues club. He didn't want punk. And I think they had to persuade him to put on a punk night with, you know, television and, he reluctantly said, yeah, so they just kind of got all their mates in and, and said, look, it's really popular. And he went, oh, OK, then. Holy. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. mean, being in New York, it was kind of weird that someone was going to start a country and blues club. <laughs> yeah. In the middle of the 70s, when there was this huge amount of heroin and um, speed and drugs. And, yeah. And the place had gone to rack and ruin with, you know, poverty and bankruptcy. But anyway, yeah. that's CBGBs. Um, yes. So then when you sort of... Yeah, so you'd hooked up with Chumbawamba, which I, yeah, I suppose it was, you know, it was definitely part of a scene because I know from that period, if you, you know, meeting, you know, various new people in my life and around that poll tax, you know, people's record collection would have, you know, Chumbawamba, Blythe Power, The Poison Girls, you know, Crass, you know, it was like yeah. they were all there, weren't they? You know, and, yeah. and various compilations yeah. like this, Alvin Lives in Leeds and The Pox Upon Your Poll Tax. So um, it was all yeah. good stuff, you know, reading Karl Marx and, being very angsty to everyone, you know, with yeah. you know, all that scene. So when when the sort of the 80s, because at that point, a lot of bands I'd noticed had in the 80s had, had sort of come to an end, especially there was, I think from 83 to 87, you know, there was a lot of indie pop, you know, and when the Smiths broke up, I know it, does, it doesn't end well with the Smiths, does it now? Um, you would have known the lead singer. Anyway, um, then he, they, they split. And most bands after that five years went, God, we just vaguely don't like each other, being diplomatic, and we've got no yeah. money, and perhaps we've had it. And also, Ecstasy appears, and, and that kind of knocks out a lot of bands because suddenly every, the next generation of 16 to 18-year-olds want you know, their band. They don't want to sort of listen to yeah. somebody who was been around for at least three years. So, that, you know, so suddenly the dance scene happens and then the grunge scene happens. So did you just kind of sail through all those kind of musical trends? And I think we did, yeah. Yeah, we just carried on doing our thing. And like I say, most of the gigs were benefit gigs. We, we did a big anti-poll tax sort of nationwide tour with um, Dan Danbert, No Bacon from Chumbawamba and Political Asylum. Right. Sterling, in Scotland. It was like a package tour we did. All, from Plymouth all the way up to Edinburgh. We did like a two week tour, you know, raising money for local anti-poll tax groups. Yes, well, that was so, so it was yeah. such a sort of force, wasn't it really? That yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like every, yeah. every, you know, benefit gig was so sold out and everyone was so passionate. Yeah. I mean, bizarrely, when I moved to Norwich, I moved into the anti-poll tax house in Norwich and there was these stickers all around the place, which, you know, had phoned this number which was our so the phone just went all the time it was <laughs> i don't know what you're going to say no sorry i don't know what to do don't pay it then i don't know why yeah. anyway you know <laughs> yeah. 
go yeah. go to the council on Sunday and wreck the place. Oh, okay, bye. yeah. Um, that was just generally, and let's have a gig and get a, you know try and get Chumbawamba to play. It was kind of you know it was all very exciting. So when you came yeah. to do this sort of the second album, which was called Frank, did did were you writing material all the time at that stage? Um, I guess not all the time, but I guess so. We 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 kind of intermittently rehearse, and then we you know one of us would come up with a riff, Matt or Ben, and then we we it would just kind of it wasn't like um. Yeah, we just kind of just turn up and just oh, got got some riffs or whatever, and just take it from there, really. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and, what, and what was their kind of musical input? Because you know, mostly with bands, you know, everyone has such a different, you know, like actually, this is what I really listen to at home. You know, I might tell the press that I listen to all these really angsty and jazz records, and I love, you know, um, Bitches Brew. <laughs> Pitcher's Brew and Trackmaster Replica and, you know, the Incredible String Band, but secretly everyone's kind of listened to The Sound of Music and um, the work of Andrew Lloyd Webber. I'm joking. Well, not completely, actually. Some people have admitted that. But what, what, were they, what was their kind of musical kind of... Um, I, I remember, I know Ben was, was a, he, he liked Pink Floyd. He was, he was into Pink Floyd and Jimi Hendrix and The Clash and... Matt, yeah, Matt was made pretty much you know similar stuff, I guess. I think, um, yeah, and we just used to rehearse in the basement in our friend's squat in Stockwell, and um, usually Ben would come up with, or would give me a tape with some riffs on, like you know a handful of riffs, and then I'd just practice along at home, and then we'd come together in the practice room, and um, that's how it worked, really. Yes, I mean, because because I was, I think it was a singer songwriter who was in the Bible called Boo who would. Who team? Who were, I don't know. He was in the Bible, and his first name's Boo. Um, but he said, you know, with most bands, as long as you've got a good drummer, you can really make a band. It will make or break a band. So, with this, mm. you know, with Frank, your drumming's pretty powerful, on it, isn't it? Oh, thanks. I mean, we we did have we did have to um, remix it though, because I remember my snare wasn't the best, and I remember we had to, we we actually accessed a um, a drum library of, of we. It was, I'm actually playing it, but we actually kind of had to multi-layer with, with, with triggered from a, like a drum library because my snare was wasn't sounding so great. So that's that's what we did on that album. Right, that and as and as a drummer, and you probably have come across this now in in various you know, documentaries. There was one on the wedding present. The uh, the click track. Did you have to play along to a click track? I've only ever done that once. It, never did it with Thatcher and Acid. I did it with a band I was in afterwards. Um, I remember playing one only once. I've played along with a click track, and I wasn't, I wasn't keen. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't keen. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I just like the thing. Sometimes songs just have then, I don't know, a natural kind of, you know, they just, they speed up, they slow down. And that whole perfection, that whole perfection thing has to be, you know, no, it's just, you know. Yes, well, I, I did an interview with Lin, Lindy, uh, Lindy Morrison from the Go-Betweens, and she's still quite traumatised by the experience she had in the 80s of the click track and the producer. Oh. Um, and also, I don't know if you saw the film on The Wedding Present, the album, you know, they, they did a documentary, which was very niche, on George Best, and there was a huge problem with the drummer, where I think they got rid of him and got another drummer. <laughs> and there was issues with the producer as well. So, um, yeah, I hadn't appreciated, you know, because when you listen to those records, you just think they're just kind of indie bands, but I didn't realise the, the pressure of the drummer, which could um, probably emotionally destroy them. And I think it probably did with the, the, both of those members and most bands, yeah, yeah. most drummers. Yeah. 
being traumatized by the click track and the pressure of the producer to uh, to get this sort of perfect beat i suppose yes yeah, so when Life's not like that, so it's just, not, <laughs> you know, anything creative's not like that, you know, it's just, it just happens, I think, um, yeah. Yes, I know, it's tricky though. But on that story of the go-betweens, the producer said to, you know, like, the Robert, who was, I think, the, because um, they, they were kind of like a Fleetwood Mac band, really, because two of the members, the four of the members were in relationships, and the producer said, look, we can have this with, with your girlfriend, and it's not going to be very successful or we can have it without your girlfriend but we, you know with this sort of studio technology and you'll have a hit and so it was like no pressure there on your relationship is there <laughs> so when you went into so where did you record the second album um that was done at um castleford it was the same studio that chumbawamba used to use um, fantastic near the chimneys uh, yeah, it was, it, it, it was, I can't remember the name of it now. It was where they used to record all their, all their stuff. But we did it, we did it, I remember, I remember it really distinctively because we did it in the summer and it was really hot. And we did, um, we, we, we got a cheaper rate. We did a night shift. So we'd start at nine o'clock in the evening, just yes. when the sun was going down. And we'd, we'd record all the way through the night. We'd wait, we'd kind of leave the studio at like eight in the morning. And it, I remember it was right next to a rendering factory. So it was in the middle of summer and there was this rendering factory that was, you know, where they made the, the animal bones and, you the know, the detritus. Yeah, the, we're coming out in the morning. It was, the sun was coming up. We'd been up all night in this, in this, like, you know, this little kind of like bunker of a studio, not a bunker, but, you know, there was no windows, there was no daylight, just sealed in this studio. And we'd come out like a bit tired and a bit, bit phased and to, to this smell of this. <laughs> rendering factory and you know and then we then we'd go back to Southview house Chumbawamba would kindly let us stay at their house in Armley and we would we, we couldn't really get much sleep because it, again it was like it was really you know it was, it was summertime it was hot during the day and it's yeah we, we did it over a week I think wow um, that's impressive so you, you did you had all the material sort of rehearsed and sort of you knew yeah what you yeah doing. I just wonder yeah. if there was anything that you know was added when you were there because yeah, there's one particular, I don't know if you remember the songs that well, actually. You must do, really. Um, yeah, I mean, we, I know when, during, during the recording time, we, we kind of accessed, we added in some tape stuff. And I remember what, there's one track we, um, called Sewage Farm, which was, which was hilarious because we had to, um, basically the line was, we all come together at Sewage Farm, we all come together at Sewage Farm, we all come together at Sewage Farm, we're all a load of, and then we'd make a noise. And I remember we had a great, took 10 minutes or so trying to make farting noise <laughs> and it was, yeah <laughs> and flushing the toilet and um so we were like playing around with stuff like that which was which was great fun yes absolutely can you remember can you remember one of the tracks that you did called can can we laugh now can we laugh now yeah can yeah. you remember how that i wrote the lyrics to that i think right because that's that's a you know that's one of the sort of for me one of the standout tracks on the on the album. So I just wondered if you can remember the writing of it and the recording of it. If there was anything unusual, not really. No, um, we never. I don't think we played it live. Um, but yeah, it was a song that actually we did a split single with Seven Year Bitch, this um, all girl grunge band from Seattle. And there was a Clawfist Singles Club. I don't know if you remember the Clawfist Singles Club. No. They, they did a limited edition of split singles, and basically they, each band would do a cover of each the other band's song. 
So on one side, we did one of their, we, we did a seven year bitch song and they did a cover of Can We Laugh Now, a very different version to ours. And we, we, did, um, we did a song of theirs called No Fucking War. Um, yes. So it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a limited edition singles club that Clawfist Records did. Fantastic. So, yeah, oh, that's all good. That's all good. Actually, yeah. they even did a John Peel session. Oh, possibly, I, I'm not sure, but they they were like L Seven kind of Seven Year Bitch kind of that sort of yeah, all girl, very feisty, full of attitude. They look like they've got a lot of attitude. Yeah, because <laughs> we met we first met them in when we did we did a tour of the West Coast in 1991, and we met them in Seattle. Right. <laughs> And at a gig or a party or something, that's where we met them. Yes. Yeah. I bet you melted. I bet you thought, blimey, we're in America and there's a four-piece or <laughs> women's band. They're going to kill us. So, yes, what was your American experience like? It was good. Yeah, it was, um, we, we literally flew into San Francisco and we did like a... To be honest, that's the right the other side. That's about... Yeah, I remember stopping. Yeah, we we stopped over in Cincinnati to get a connecting flight to San Francisco, and then we drove got off at San Francisco. I remember we met, we met some friends who set up our backline and a van, and we drove all the way up to Washington, right, Washington State to Seattle. And I think we were due to play a party. And I think we got there at some late hour or something, and I think it had been postponed or cancelled, so it didn't it didn't get off to the best start. And then we. So then we played in Olympia and we played in Seattle. Did we play in Seattle? I can't remember now. When we played, yeah, we played it. We played it like there was like an open. There was like a park festival in the park, and I think Seven Year Bitch played at that, and we played at that, and some other bands as well. I think later it became quite famous. I think it was organised by K Records. Right, K Calvin Re Johnson. Calvin, yeah, because he put out a single. We we did a single with him. Oh, but good old Calvin. Yeah, we love Calvin, don't we? Um, yeah. So in that, in sort of nineteen ninety one period, I mean, sub pop was going by then because Bleach had come out. Because I remember seeing, mm. you know, Tad and Nirvana at the Art Centre, and they did a tour that was eighty yeah. nine. So was there a bit of a? I mean, were you going down incredibly well? Because let's face it, when you're in England and you're, you know, a youngish person obsessed with music. Anything a long way away seems very exciting, doesn't it? So we loved anything, <laughs> even if it was rubbish, you know, as long as it was obscure and in a yeah. you know, far off place. Did you have a bit of a following in America? Was the, did it sort of, did our special, what do they call it, their special relationship with the, you know, Britain and America? Did that, did that sort of, was that reciprocated? Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing, do you remember Maximum Rock and Roll? Yes. Yeah, Maximum Rock and Roll used to have like the, contributors for that magazine would list their favorite bands and we were quite often listed in maximum rock and roll and we we get radio plays on certain radio stations over there and when we went to the west coast we actually we actually did a radio session for a, a radio local radio show in santa barbara i think it might have been a college college radio college radio was massive over there yeah we, we used to get quite, you know, listings on college radio and we did, yeah, we did a radio session over there in Santa Barbara. Yeah. Yes. Um, we played at Gilman Street in Barclay, famous Gilman Street venue. We played there with Green Day, actually. Yeah. Yes. And the, the, the Offspring, we played with the Offspring in, in Los Angeles. And, oh, um, God. Yeah. Huge yeah. bands, aren't they? You know, yeah, I know. It's just weird, like they're kind of, 
It's bizarre. Yeah, we did a couple of gigs with Green Day and a gig with Offspring. Yeah, probably thought they're, they're never going to make it, are they? They just yeah, yeah. I've got the poster somewhere of the Green Day somewhere. Probably just signed by them. He thought, oh, I've got to throw that in the recycling. Oh well. Yeah. 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 So did you just you didn't come to the East Coast at all? It was just no, a... no. Just it was just 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 the West Coast. So literally from all the way started in Washington, we ended all the way up down to all the way down to Arizona. Climbing. That's nice. That's nice. Yeah. God, you must have seen some nice national parks as you drove whizzing. Yeah, it was beautiful. It was, yeah, some we some we kind of used San Francisco as a base. That's what kind of like where we stay. We have some friends there. Like, I haven't been something. to America much, but that that kind of area, but you know, like New Mexico, Arizona, is you know, I really I love those national parks. Yeah. That's it, really. Yeah. Um, there's just something quite unique about them. So when you came back, was the band on a bit of a high at this stage? I think, yeah, I remember, I think 91, we were quite productive. We went to the States. Um, we also played a big festival in Poland. It was almost like the, um, it's like the Polish equivalent of Glastonbury. It's in a place called Yarochin. Right. Which I think central Poland, I think. And I'd arranged with this guy in West London. For some reason, we were being played on Polish radio or some underground station were playing. We're very keen on Thatcher and Acid. And I... I got a connection with him. I can't remember who it was, but he's he said, "Oh, do you want to play at this festival? You know, we can sort it out." And that's so he it was weird. We kind of got free tickets from British Airways in exchange for British Airways demanding they have their logo on the poster for this festival. So it was bizarre. And we 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 flew into Warsaw and got picked up by a guy who drove us to this to the site about an hour and a half drive. God, that's brilliant. These crazy, like, sort of country roads. He was driving like a maniac. I, I do remember that, which was quite, quite. Yeah, that, that, that's and, an exp- And then arriving in this small town Yarrowchin and seeing like this sort of massive British Airways logo in the middle of the town square. It was really weird. It was really, it's almost, oh yeah, it's really quite weird. Yeah. Yes, the, the marketing department. <laughs> we, of we, we, were the, we were the only band from the UK who were playing at this festival. I think initially, there was rumours that Happy Mondays were going to be playing as well, but they pulled out. They did. They um. They didn't make it for some reason. So um. Yeah. We, were the only, we were the only British band who played. So did you do you know like a, a European tour and go to West Berlin and places like that? Because I know Chumbawamba. I remember once being in Berlin and and sort of being at one of those kind of events where there was lots of groovy young people. And they were going, oh, Chumba yeah. Wumba. But it, it was, it got later and later. And I was like, actually, I'm just incredibly tired. And I just left. It was, I, I can't even remember what the year was, but there was that kind of, they should be on soon. It was like, Christ, it's nearly midnight. Yeah. I need to go. Yeah, to we went, we, we did, um, we did a tour of, um, like a short tour of Holland and Germany in 1988. Right. September We went over to Holland and then to Germany. We went to West Berlin, played at this amazing place called The Cobb, which was like a, Originally, it was a social centre where people had squatted it and they had like, they, they were so organised. They had like a cinema, a gig venue, a cafe, and people were living there as well. It was just, um, yeah, just a, quite an amazing place. But that was in West Berlin. So the wall was still up. And I remember driving through Checkpoint Charlie at two in the morning or something and demanding, shining torches in the van. And so we need to see your papers. And, you know, you're not allowed to stop on the road. You have to drive directly to West Berlin and... Yeah, it was kind of weird. Kind of, yeah, I find it, weird. I actually, I find it quite terrifying because we went, we would stay there for, with my friend's brother for two weeks and eventually we went to West, uh, East Berlin and 
and that whole thing of like my god you know you could really be disappeared here couldn't you and no one would know you know and it's like yeah. and sort of it was getting late and it was like oh we have to get back by half 11 and it's like i was quite keen to sort of can we just go back <laughs> can we go back quite soon yeah. you know it was it was quite yeah it was quite intimidating really i would have we only flew in i wouldn't have, you know that drive sounded quite um quite hardcore really so um, yeah yeah it's quite impressive though so then in sort of 92 how so the band yeah you go for most of the 90s don't you, you know. yeah we i think we we finished in 93 the last tour we did was of, we, we did a tour in scandinavia with alice Dona, a band on alternative tentacles yes in new york we did like a two-week tour up in scandinavia that was like our, our last tour and the last gig was um a big festival in southern germany with the lemonheads were playing it was in this massive marquee um and that was the last last gig we did although we did we did we did we did actually do we 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 did reform and did a couple of benefit gigs for the libel campaign for yeah. Helen and Dave, you know, because they were desperately needed, de desperately needed money for their campaign. God, yes, yeah, absolutely. Because so I know there was a guy called Thomas who was a German guy who who sort of appeared in the um, from Germany in London in the early eighties. He used to put on a lot of British bands around Europe. He wasn't he wasn't one of the people who helped set up any of your tours around. Europe at no, all. No, no. We, we we went through a friend of ours in Holland, a guy called Heis, right. Heis the bit from Alphen. And he went on to work, did a lot of work, uh, tour managed No Means No in yeah. Canada. Yeah, he, he did a lot of work with them and he, he had his own record label and he used to organise tours. So he, he set our tours up. So in, in 93, was there the feeling that the band, you know, you'd all sort of it run its course, so to speak? I think so, yeah. Um, it wasn't like a, there was no kind of like massive falling out or, you know, not one of those classic, you know, bands breakups. Yeah. Um, but we, yeah, we just kind of went, kind of decide. I think we kind of, it kind of like, we'd not, I don't say run out of road, but we just kind of, yeah, just kind of came to an end really. And um, yeah, I think the last thing we did was the single on K Records. Right. Three track EP that Calvin put out. Oh, good old Yo-Yo, was it Yo-Yo Man? That's right, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. I know, yeah, I mean, a lot of bands just have that feeling that I spoke to that, you know, like you said, I remember there was one band who were quite successful and then they had a tour, tour planned and then there was the World Cup on and I think most of the members like, actually, I'd rather just watch the World Cup. And I think the main people who were, you know, had the baton, who were trying to drive it forward and realise that if if... If you know eighty percent of the band would rather stay at home and watch the World Cup, it's probably time yeah. to, to quit, really. So I think that's yeah. you know, and also I think at that stage, often there aren't isn't hasn't been a lot of money either, so there isn't that feeling of yeah, you know. I know not everyone does it for money, but it kind of does help sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we know. Yeah, we, we like I say, ninety percent of our gigs were benefit gigs. Um, yeah, I think we. We, I think the only time we kind of got paid was when we played in Europe. We did a couple of, we did a few gigs with Fugazi in oh, Holland. Um, and yeah, that would, yeah, so we got paid, you know, getting paid like loads of, quite a lot of money. What we thought was a lot of money then for, you know, so that's, that's quite nice. But yes. mate, like, mate, we, I mean, we weren't, we weren't in it for the money. It was just like, you know, we, we enjoyed doing it. And then, like I say, you, it was most, most of it was benefit gigs. Yeah. Can you remember what 
the, you know, like with, you know, your singles albums, how many, you know, you, you know, copies you sold at all? I just wondered if, you know, what sort of numbers they, what they were, you know, just. Um, I can't remember. I mean, most, mostly they were, they were all done by our friend, Sean, well, Sean and Ben um, sort of did this record label, Rugger Bugger. So they put, they put the stuff out. And there's a guy in California, John Yates, who ran Allied Recordings, who did a, he did a lot of, does a lot of artwork for Alternative Tentacles and did his, he's done his own publications. He had his own record label. So he put out a split album we did with Watt Tyler. Right. Um, which is the band that Sean was in, Sean Forbes, he was in Watt Tyler. So we did a split album with, with, with them. And yeah, John put that out. But it was, and the other stuff was put out by, by Sean and then Agit Prop through by Chumbawamba and Southern Studios. Yes. Oh, good answer. So then what happens when, you know, you, you do your moment, the band finishes? What, did you sort of keep in music at that stage? You did mention you were in other bands, actually. Yeah, I mean, basically, when we did the, um, when we were recording a split album with, with uh, Watt Tyler, I had this idea. There was, there was one particular song that it was on, it's on Frank. It's um, a track called Gods Are Falling Down. It's on the, um, it's on the Frank album. Um, I had this idea of re-recording it with Steve Ignorant from Crass on vocals. Nice. So I just, I just called him up out of the blue, just saying, hi, Steve, it's Andy. My name's Andy from Thatcher Acid. Would you be interested in, we're going in the studio, would you be interested in coming to do some vocals on the track? And he said, yeah, 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 definitely, I'll be up for it. And that was it. That's, and that's how we, we made that link with, with Steve. And then once, yeah, that came out, that was all fine. And then that's how we kind of, the next thing after Schwarz, after Thatcher and Acid was Schwarzenegger, which consisted of Ben, myself and Bob, who was, who played bass on the last talk as Matt, I think, because Matt was, a, Matt was a, a, a doctor and he couldn't make that tour. So Bob, who's like one of my oldest school friends, uh, came in on bass for the last tour. Right. My God. So, yeah. So you, you sort of kept plugging away, doing various kind of bits and pieces with different combos, yeah. didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. And Rob yeah. Johnson on Irregular Records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did, I did, I did a handful of gigs with Rob. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did a live album with him. The first gig was quite memorable. It was, it was at a, it was a festival, a commemorative festival they have every year in a small village in the Cotswolds to celebrate the Levellers, which was like the, the first ever trade union. Yes. And they were, they were all found guilty of treason and all sorts. And every year there's a festival to celebrate the levelers and Tony Benn turned up and did a talk and Billy Bragg was headlining and it was the first gig I'd done with Rob Johnson and the Irregulars and um, it was a very, it was just Rob Johnson on guitar and vocals, Miranda Sykes playing a double bass, I think she's in a band called Show of Hands, I'm not sure if you've heard of yeah, Show of Hands. Yeah, she, I, I'm not sure if she still plays with them but she was on double bass and I was on the drums, it was a very shallow stage and uh, there's three three legs of a drum stool, and um, we were halfway through the set, and I was drumming away, and literally one of the legs of the, uh, oh, yeah. the stool went went literally disappeared, and I did a sort of back somersault off the back of the stage, and um, landed at the feet of Billy Bragg, who was sat behind watching. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it was. Uh, I was. It was quite. Yeah, I was. I, I could have broken my neck actually. Thinking about yes, it. I was. I, I know. Yeah, and um, 
So that was uh, that was quite memorable. Yeah. I, I, got, I got up and I was I was I think I was hysterically laughing, probably out of relief more than anything else. And then someone in the crowd just said, "Oh, do it again, do it again." Yeah. And unfortunately, some guy was filming it with his camcorder, but his camcorder had actually run out. He'd actually catch me falling off the back of the stage. My God, it was like, is it Motley Crue that used to have that sort of drummer used to sort of revolve around in some cage? I suppose that was a sort of a yeah. cheaper version, just one off the yeah, stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, though, it's kind of funny. With age, you just think, Christ, that could have just, you know, could have been one yeah. of those horrible moments where you... Because I think Curtis Mayfield... I think he was just kind of, I don't know, doing a soundtrack and something dropped on him, you know, like something dropped and he had broke his neck. So, he, you know, he was kind of paralysed from the head down, basically. And, yeah. Uh, those yeah. sort of stories are like, oh, yes, that's probably could have been. So then were you just, I mean, did you sort of, was music something that became more of a hobby uh, of a sort of sideline and, you know, other life got in, other parts of life started to happen? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was ne- like I said, it was never a full-time job. It's always... Yeah, I was always doing something else to make money, sort of uh, working as a chef in a macrobiotic restaurant or life modelling or being a courier or, yeah. Yes. So have you managed to kind of of archive and and sort of get all your, you know, like both the recordings and your, you know, because you must have loads of posters and gigs, uh, gig tickets or, you know, pictures and stuff like that, because I always think the archiving is so important. Yeah, I've got. A, I've actually got um on my book. It's like a scrapbook here of um. Nice. We like that. Singles of the week. We got. I remember they gave us single of the week in the enemy in 1990. Um, Stephen, remember Stephen Wells? Stephen yes. Wells? Good old Stephen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. He was a champion of ours. He was quite into our stuff, and he gave us single of the week once in the enemy, which we were quite chuffed about. Yes. We weren't expecting it at all. It was back when, it's back when the NME was, you know, kind of like a news, proper music paper. God, it was it was essential on a Wednesday morning getting the yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. guess you've seen all these kind of interesting, you know, it's this passing of time, which is about 30 years or possibly mm. 25, where suddenly things get re-evaluated. And there was that film on the Nightingales, wasn't there, with... Um, Stuart I missed Lee. that. I, I wanted to see that. Oh my god, yeah. that's amazing! And and Stephen yeah. Wells appears because Rob Lloyd from the Nightingales at one stage is is kind of has a little bit of a company with Stephen Wells. But they, oh yes, and then they they have a script that they take to the t- a TV company and they say, yeah, that's absolutely fine. Yeah, <laughs> they, they fall they fall out on the way back from the the meet into their office, and Stephen Wells just picks up everything and walks off and never is seen again. It's a bit of a classic. Um, so it's worth seeing. And there was a film on the Nighting, um, the Nightingales, obviously. And then there was the Chills and the Go-Betweens. And um, yeah, I mean, everyone has just been getting these little films out. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm sure, yes, just, just getting an archive of material is kind of great. And you must have been slightly amazed when, because I, I you know, had sort of several friends who were huge Womba fans from the 80s. And it was like, they're, they're just about over now. And then they come and have the massive single, which is up there with 99 Red Balloons. Did you, were you just yeah. boggled by, by what happened to them during that period? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, good luck to them, really. I mean, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I do remember seeing them on top of the pops and Harry, the drummer. I remember the, the camera was behind him, and he, um, I remember spotting on his snare drum, he'd written in marker pen, "Kill Bono," <laughs> which I quite, I quite liked. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, that was just it was just one. Of, no one quite expected it to happen, did they? Really? Yeah. Which was quite, yeah. you know. Yeah. 
So, so if you were, you know, because you've obviously had sort of quite an eventful kind of musical career. I mean, if you could have said something to a 16 or 18 year old self starting out in music, you know, what sort of either advice or little words of wisdom would you kind of whisper or would have whispered to yourself back then? Um, get yourself a good pair of earplugs. Yeah, because I, I, I've suffered from tinnitus now in my left ear, which is usually where the monitor was. And um, sort of spending hours in a kind of like a, a basement rehearsal studio with no ear protection. That would be my one word of advice. Get yourself some proper custom earplugs and protect your ears. Yes. And, but on the music front, you, you know, I mean, it sounds like you really enjoyed it and everything was what you wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, sometimes I did, I uh, did struggle with touring. I'm kind of, uh, sort of being away from kind of your own bed and sort of like, kind of like there's only so many paprika chips you can eat, you know, when you're driving on an autobahn, you know, and sort of yes. <laughs> drinking yeah. kind of on tour, you kind of, don't you don't get to eat that well and kind of irregular sleep patterns and so um but I don't I don't regret it I don't regret it at all it was um yeah I, I sort of hadn't realized how rug you know how difficult or kind of unglamorous the touring world is you know it's just kind of you know and that's yeah. why I mean I spoke to a few people who obviously are still touring now as a sort of you know like a living like this guy you know fish from Marillion and he just said after years of doing it and he you know because he's very tall he said he just has to have a good bed because you know he just wouldn't be able to stand in the morning you know things like that he just said you know you have to you, you yeah. know you can get away with it when you're younger and having a proper meal and trying to sleep but when you're in your yeah. 60s and you and you, yeah. you know someone's booked you in for sort of 30 nights in 30 days around Europe you you have to sort of really look after yourself I mean that was pre you know yeah. god knows if anyone will ever do that again but there you go and that is the end of that. Anyway, well, it's not quite. There's only a few more minutes, but the, we just start getting more abstract and chatty. So that's the end of the interview. And a big thank you to Andy Tuck for giving me the time for that interview from Thatcher on Acid. That's all I can say. Um, and also, I've been doing lots of interviews with bands from the 80s. And David, anybody connected to David Bowie, is an obsession. And you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86 Show, any obscure indie band from that decade. And um, if you want to contact me for some nice and but random reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show and uh, make it nice and positive. Otherwise, don't bother. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.